Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Nada, señor. A ver, permítame, déjale busco. Y nosotros. Comandante, ¿qué es eso? ¿Qué distancia más o menos lo tenías, Telles? ¿Eh? Oye, te ha... a ver, abusado, eso es como. Ahí van más. Van más, siguen más atrás. Son 10, 11 objetos. Son muchos objetos. Afirmativo. Ahí van. Va, uno. Uno. Y ahí van los atrás. Siguientes. The voices you just heard came from a transmission between ground personnel and members of the Mexican Air Force. On March 5th, 2004, over the city of Carmen Campache, an Air Force bimotor plane was on a routine flight to detect a drug smuggling airplane. During their patrol, however, members of the crew witnessed no less than 11 unidentified flying objects in close proximity. These objects were recorded on the plane's dome-mounted infrared camera system. They showed bright balls of solid light floating stationary at high altitudes. The crew claimed that these objects then began to surround the plane. Eventually, the crew made a safe landing and a report of the event was prepared. The Secretary of Defense took notice and began a full investigation studying and evaluating every element of the case. The video and accompanying transmissions were made public, leaving many to believe this was an authentic UFO event in midair. The others were more skeptical, believing it was nothing more than oil platform burn-off flares from a refinery below. No matter the case, this UFO event was one of the many unsolved mysteries that have invaded the skies over Mexico. And as we'll learn today, they've invaded the ground as well. My guest is Ruben Uriarte. Ruben is a member of MUFON as a field investigator, state MUFON director for Northern California, and Deputy Director of Investigations and International Affairs. He has authored a number of books co-written with Texas UFO researcher No Taurus about major UFO crashes and other historical cases that have occurred along the borders of the United States and Mexico. Today, we talk about the Cisco Grove incident in which a UFO witness spent an entire night fighting off a gang of strange beings he believes were from another planet. We then move into the incredible case of pilot Carlos de los Santos, who while mid-flight was surrounded by three saucer-shaped UFOs. We also talk about the controversial and lesser-known UFO crash known as the Cayome Incident. So, without further ado, here is our conversation with Ruben Uriarte. 
Ruben, thank you so much for joining us on Somewhere in the Skies. Oh, thank you, Ryan, for the invitation. I'm glad to be here with you and your audience. Great. I've been following your work for a while now. Uh, I've seen you speak several times, and you never cease to amaze me with bringing <laughs> new, fresh cases. Um, you know, we have our Roswells, we have our Rendlesham's, but there are so many other fascinating cases with evidence out there that people don't know about. Um, so we're definitely going to talk about some of those today. And one of those cases is, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. This is the 1964 Cisco Grove encounter. And uh, this one, like I said, isn't talked about much. And um, it's a little out there, to be honest, when I first heard about it. Um, but those are the ones I find the most fascinating. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, would you mind running us through this incredible case and also how you got involved researching it? Because I know you have firsthand uh, research and investigation into this. Yes, uh, thank you, Ryan. Uh, I, I just want to preface that um, the research that I've been doing, specifically in the Southwest and in Mexico, um, I've been working very closely with my good friend and, and colleague, Noe Torres, who... Uh, we have co-authored a number of books together and on the whole subject of of the U.S. US and Mexico border incidents, which has really has opened up a lot more for us in terms of networking with a number of the Mexican investigators and with a number of other people as well. And it's been ongoing. Of course, uh, I've been with MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, for approximately 25 years now. 26, wow. actually. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, well, that's my age. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I serve as an international um, coordinator uh, as well as a state director for Northern California. And th throughout uh, this whole period of time, um, I've been working with a number of very, very professional people um, that are in MUFON and also outside of MUFON. So there's a number of dedicated people that are like me are, and like yourself. You know, we're trying to find out what the truth is and and also look at those cases. So specifically, both Noe and I have been concentrating on these historical cases um, that are not heard of, as you had mentioned, and if we don't really share that, uh, the audience or the UFO community as well as the general community will, will not know about these significant cases. Right. So we tend to concentrate on those. And it's amazing, Ryan. There are a number of so many interesting cases that go back in the late 40s, early 50s, and 60s and on that I think um, you know we should not forget about them. And also um, – the pioneers that we've had, the, the former investigators that are out, out there that worked on these cases that are no longer here, but they've left their significant contribution for for us and as well as the future generations to keep keep um, researching and have that material available. But uh, going back to the uh, this one encounter, uh, we call it uh, Aliens in a Forest, the Cisco Grove UFO encounter, which we wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a it's an interesting story, Brian, um, by a gentleman by the name of Don Shrum, and his his uh, experience happened back in 1964 in September, 
in an area known as Cisco Grove, which is uh, about 80 miles northeast of Sacramento, going toward Nevada. And it's an area near what we call near, near the Tahoe National Forest. And he was approximately 26 years old at the time. And he was also a bow and arrow hunter. So he uh, hunted for deer. And throughout through that part of the season, you're only, um, you know, you're, you can, you're only allowed to bring a bow and arrow and not any firearms until later for, for the hunting season. So he and his buddies had, had decided to spend uh, a, a, uh, a weekend to do some hunting. And there was two other gentlemen that had joined him. And when they arrived at the camps at their campsite, he decided to, uh, they would just take an early evening hunt. So he um, started to follow a trail, which uh, got all, all of a sudden it just got real dark. And probably that was an issue that he should have, you know, he had to reconsider. They should <laughs> he should have waited. But uh, what happened was that um, he. It got dark, and he just he knew he could get back to the campsite, so he decided to uh, climb up a tree, mainly to protect himself from predators like mountain lions and bears and that. And he was a well-seasoned hunter, so he knew a lot about hunting and and being a, a woodsman, an outdoor woodsman, as well. So he climbed up a tree, and later that evening uh, he got down and he started some little campfires and um, lo and behold he saw a light out there in the distance and this light came closer to him and he thought it was a helicopter well then he, he uh, was concerned because uh, he said wait a minute there's no sound <laughs> and then all of a sudden this light appeared to him and he realized that it, this was not a light uh, he could see a silhouette of a large cylinder shaped object flying right above him and that frightened the heck out of him. And he immediately climbed back up on the tree and hid him, hid. And then the all of a sudden, a small scout ship, uh, a smaller ship, was ejected from the larger ship, like what we can refer to it as a mothership. Mm-hmm. And, and the small object uh, landed, and he's there in his in his tree. And then all of a sudden, he sees these humanoid-shaped creatures coming toward him, and. Uh, then when he looked at them, the thing that was really unusual, Ryan, was that they looked like they were wearing spacesuits. Right, the way right. That's the goggles, and they, and they had these large eyes, and from what from what he remembered. And later, it was followed by another creature, uh, or more of a robot, and it started to also approach up to the tree. So. They were interested in him, and they were trying to get him down from the tree, and he fought with him all night. That was a struggle. Um, so this uh, incident was investigated way back by a gentleman named Paul Cerny. He was with uh, NICAP, a National Investigation Center for Anomalous uh, Phenomena. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, it was the largest um, um, organization at that time. And Paul was the lead investigator and he uh, later received the uh, the case on this because this gentleman finally had, had uh, filed a, a report so Paul went to interviewed him this is back in 65 and he put together a very detailed report a transcript 
and an audio of his investigation. So the way I got involved in it uh, was years later, um, Paul had passed away, and and I I acquired a number of his cases his, uh, when he was with NICAP. Uh, I forgot to, to mention that Paul was also with MUFON. Okay, so that's how you two got connected. Yeah. Okay. That's how we, so uh, he... Um, so I found the case, and later I, I read it, and I thought, oh, my God. I said, who would have ever thought, what would, what would I do if I'm, if I'm hiking and I, I get lost or hunting, and what would I do and, you know, what I, if I had an encounter with, with extraterrestrials? And uh, through synchronicity, I was able to meet with him uh, through another colleague in MUFON, and we... He invited me to come and stay a, a weekend with him there, there at his home with his family, and I got a really—it was a great opportunity to re-interview re him. Basically, go over the notes that I had and materials um, that I had acquired that were almost approximately about fifty years. Wow! And I tell you um, that uh, his. He relived the invest. He relived the experience with me, and it was as if he was there, and it was still fresh in his mind because he was traumatized by this experience. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and and so what was really fortunate was that uh, his son uh, videotaped the entire interview that I did with him, and we were able to um, compile both video and audio um, tapes of the questions in the and his responses mm -hmm. to each of the questions and I believe we will have a chance to share that with the audience but also um, one of the wishes of both he and his, and his wife was that they wanted his story to be put into a book and, and to, as, as told by them because there were a lot of variations of stories that were being misconstrued or whatever um, yeah. And so we were very fortunate to have been been able to both Noe and I to write their put their story into a book. And unfortunately, both uh, he and his wife have now passed away. Um, and uh, he survived by his son and t two other daughters. But w at least I feel good that we have complied, you know, with their their uh, with their dreams or wishes because we were able to put it into a book form. And also, we could share the story now with with the audience. So, yeah, it is a very significant uh, event here that happened in Northern California. And um, also, later, if we get a chance, I'd like to share with you another similar story of uh, three young men. Uh, actually, they were Boy Scouts mm -hmm. uh, in, in Mexico along the border that also had a, a similar experience where they had an encounter with with extraterrestrials where they had to seek refuge in a tree and then later uh there was a, a number of these uh beings came right up to them and so it's a whole other story which i hopefully wow. can't share yeah let's um what we'll do now ruben is i'd like to share some of that audio from your personal interviews so we'll go ahead and play one of those right now and i heard some thrashing through the brush in probably five ten minutes these two humanoids come out of the brush and they kind of broke some of the brush off and, and uh, was looking at it. And then they came straight underneath the tree and looked up at me. 
And I, I knew right then I was fingered. <laughs> they found you. Yeah, they found me. Can you describe them for us? Yeah, they were, looked like uh, four to five feet. Of course, I'm looking down at them, so they, they'd be shorter than they probably are. And uh, they had a silvery, like a one-piece uh, suit on, and it seemed like it had the, the joints, puffy joints, you know, on the shoulders and the, and the elbows, and, and the legs I didn't see that clear. Were you able to see their faces? No, I, it was just a kind of a dark shadow. I could see the the two uh, like eyes that were looked like welding goggles to me. They're the same as welding goggles, there. about two inches in diameter. It reminded me just like I said, like a w welding goggles. And then the rest of the face was kind of a uh, blur. I couldn't see looking down at them. Then I saw two flashing red orange eyes just picking its way down the ridge, just between the rocks and, and around them and everything, and come down and was on the, this big boulder, this big flat rock. And then uh, he kind of looked up at me and he moved his hand through the fires, cinders, and kind of scattered them. Then he come down uh, up on the rock. He was about seven feet from me. And uh, then he, he touched his mouth and... Uh, kind of a steam vapor come out of his mouth and it lit up its face so I could see some detail and then uh, I, I blacked out when that steam hit me kind of took the air from me and I'd gasp for air and then black out and I fell over my bow and that's the only thing that kept me in the tree and then uh, so I figured they were out to get me then the eyes of this other uh, creature like uh, the robot. What, what did that look like to you? It had uh, kind of like fire. It's kind of a orangish, reddish orange or yellowish orange. It kind of flickered like fire, and they're about the same diameter as uh, about two inches in diameter as the humanoids. Did you hear any noise between them? Any communication? Was there any? You know, uh, I heard uh, kind of a, a cooing or almost like an owl, but it could have been an owl you know, that up there, but it just kind of fit in with, with them. I had a 60-pound bow, which is a very high velocity. Since, since how the robot is the only thing that was causing me harm, I shot the chest area, and it has the velocity of a rifle at that, at that distance because I'm only about seven, eight feet from him. And it, when I hit the chest, the sparks would fly like an arc welder kind of, and... Then that, that robot backed up and almost knocked him down. He f kind of fell back against a rock. And the two at the, at the bottom took off and headed to, for the brush and stood out there about 30 feet from me. And uh, then uh, I shot uh, two more arrows and about the same time sequence. These uh, two humanoids would, every time I'd shoot, they'd go back up into the, the brush just out, of, just almost out of sight from me. Then I, I ran out of uh, arrows, so I only had three left. And uh, I thought, well, I had. That's when pomade hair is <laughs> just. I mean, the, the cap I had on was just soaked with oil. Your, this is for your hair. Yeah, from my hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pomade. And uh, I always carried uh, all kinds of books of matches with me when I hunted. And so I lit that cap and it just blazed up and I dropped it down the base of the tree and just in that instant they, they moved back about 12-15 feet and the, the 
I, I glanced over at the, the ship that was uh, over the canyon, kind of almost level with me, and it was almost out of sight. It was just like a star. It moved that fast, just in that second. So then I got the idea that they're scared of fire. So I, I burned everything but my T-shirt and my jeans, and uh, come to find out later on that, that it was 32 degrees out, and I was shaking and kind of overexposed for the weather. Oh, when I throw, threw my, after my hat, I threw my canteen down, and uh, they, they'd picked it up and looked at it and, and threw it back down. And I, at one time I threw, uh, I had a bunch of change, and I threw it down, and they, they all kind of gathered around it. Somebody told me on the coins that it gets dates, it gets pictures, you know. So there was, maybe that was the reason they were, that they got most of the coins. But you didn't find any? No. What, what about the robot creature? What, what did this, what did well, it Well, after I uh, started burning stuff and throwing it down, and I even uh, uh, tied some, some of my shirt that I ripped up uh, to a compass so I could try to hit some brush because there wasn't nothing right underneath the tree. And then uh, I caught a little pile of brush on fire. I figured that would bring the cavalry. <laughs> but uh, when I run out of stuff to burn, I headed for the top of the tree. And then, then I'd, I'd, uh, I, it was a pretty sparse tree I could see down to the ground. And I broke off the top and threw it down. And, and any time I'd throw down or, or shake the tree, these humanoids would back up. When I was up in the top of that tree, I uh, thought about just jumping off and jumping down the canyon and just killing myself. But the only thing that kept me going is I had a, the little girl, my wife, and that kept me fighting. After I went to the top of the tree, I, I had a military belt, and I moved it out to the last hitch and, and put it around me and the, and the tree. So in case I did get gassed, they wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't fall down. And then finally, these two humanoids stepped back from the tree, and another robot came. And there was two just uh, about the same place that the two humanoids were. And this, they stood facing each other, and the flames, just like uh, lightning, br real, real bright, and just came between them. And uh, then the gas was so thick coming up the tree that it... it, it Oh, it would uh, dissipate just about the time I got to me. But then that's when I'd start to uh, gas for air. And, and then when I woke up from that, is, uh, it was light, but the sun hadn't come up yet. And uh, I was just hanging by my belt, my head down, my feet down, and they were gone. Well, I knew I made it. I lived through the night. Just to go back, did you, did you fall asleep? Or, I mean, or this gas, was it over, did it overwhelm you? Uh... Yeah, that's when it just... It completely engulfed the whole tree and, and got up to me, and at, I don't know how long I was I was out, but it was just, uh, you could see just a, a dim glow of the sun in the, on the clouds and stuff, not clouds, but in the sky. And then uh, when I woke up, it was light, but the sun hadn't come up yet. I got down and I, I found, found my compass and, and no coins, the coins were gone, and my can canteen, but I knew uh, I, which way I shot the arrow and which way it would arc. So I found two of them and then uh, tried to make my way back to camp. And I got almost to camp and I just kind of fatigued and everything. I just laid down. And I heard this, my buddy, hunting buddy, uh, whistling. And I yelled at him and he, he come 
picked me up and helped me to camp. I slept for about six hours because I'd been up all night, and then they didn't bug me until, you know, until I woke up. Then uh, I told them more of the story. What was, it, what was their reaction? Well, they believed me because they, they saw the condition I was in. And that's see that's absolutely fascinating to hear from the witnesses themselves Ruben is um it's rare and it's like you said this is uh both he and his wife have since passed away so some of these audio interviews are all we have left including your book to hear the most accurate story so uh thank you for sharing that with me and with the audience um I'd love to dive right into the other case you mentioned that is almost similar, but in a completely different part of the world. Um, would you mind sharing that story with us? Yes. Uh, what's also very interesting, uh, that has some similarities to the Cisco Grove case, was an event that happened um, by three young men um, that were separated from a hiking excursion back in May, uh, May 16th uh, of ni- in 1997. And this happened in the rugged border desert known as La, La Rumarosa, and that is in uh, northern Baja, California. It's a real rugged uh, area, and it stretches on both sides of the border. And these young men were um, hiking, and they were going to follow, and they were all part of a Boy Scout uh, uh, excursion. And the, the entire troop went hiking into toward a, some waterfalls that were that was like about, about, about approximately about ten miles away from their main campsite. And somehow these these young men uh, were following uh, the main the main group. And when they were returning back from the campsite, um, they took the wrong trail. And along the trail, they noticed um, there were a lot of rattlesnakes, <laughs> big ones. <laughs> and uh, obviously, they, were, they just said, hey, we're going to um, – and it, it was starting to get dark. And then they thought well, they're going to try to uh, st- stop and start a campfire. And they, they saw a, some trees, and so they decided to get close to the trees and start a campfire. And they couldn't, and it just started getting darker. So then they decided to climb up the tree and protect themselves from not only the rattlesnakes, but from any other predators as well. But later that evening, uh, they saw again, uh, it's very similar like like the Cisco, Cisco Grove case, these bright lights that were far away. And they thought, oh, maybe that's a search party, or maybe that's a, a, a helicopter. They, they just kept looking. And they kept looking, and the lights were coming closer and closer to them. And all of a sudden, they realized that the light started taking uh, into, it was taking a certain form. It was a form like these small humanoids, only they were glowing white. They're like a like a bioluminescent color. Okay. And these guys were were approaching the tree, and they came up. To the tree, and whatever this is what what I find fascinating, Ryan, was that whatever they touched, um, that would it would glow like they would touch a rock, or they would touch a plant, or touch the tree. Their handprint would glow. Oh, interesting! And, 
So it, yeah. would, it would almost like be transported or it was almost like a contagious luminescence. <laughs> exactly. And I thought that was – and plus their bodies were glowing. Right, right. Uh, and, and I thought, well, why, why carry a flashlight? <laughs> I mean, yeah, what's the point? <laughs> your body's glowing and then whatever you touch is lit up. And I thought that, that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. And, and um, so like both cases, um, going back to – going back to the – Bow and arrow case. I forgot to mention that in in that particular story with Don Shrum, both these alien creatures, alien humanoids, as well as the robot creature, were, were trying to capture him, mm-hmm. and uh, they were trying to knock him out with a some sort of vapor that was being emitted from the from the robot creature. So what happened was he um, Don was on survival mode and he climbed up further up the tree and then he started uh, breaking down the limbs. He had a, he had match matchsticks with him and he would light the tree branches on fire and throw, throw them down toward the, toward the humanoids. Wow. And that's what frightened them. That's what frightened the, the humanoids. Mm-hmm. They were, they were afraid of the fire and they immediately backed up. And so did the robot. And then, um, as soon as the fire would die down, then they would just come right back up to the tree. And he was, he was uh, maybe about 15, 20 feet up, up, uh, up on the tree. And then he would sway the tree back and forth just to uh, frighten those, frighten them as well. But they, they stayed there. And what happened was he finally got fed up and, uh, and annoyed by the robot creature. And he had three arrows with him. And he shot all three arrows at the robot creature. At first, he had thought about shooting the humanoids, but then he thought, "No, they're not. They're not really bothering me." You know, something told him inside not to do that. Mm-hmm. But instead, he shot at the at the rob at the robot uh, creatures. So, um, with that, uh, there was another group of aliens that also, or humanoids, that arrived with another robot creature. And then the, both of the robot creatures arrived. Both another robot approached the uh, the robot that was next to the tree. They both stared at each other, and then there was all of a sudden there was this electromagnetic uh, uh, lightning and everything. And this force field just opened up, and then it both both robots em- emitted this huge plume of gas that went up and uh, toward Don, and uh, Don became unconscious. What what happened was Don had was smart. He had wrapped his belt around himself and a tr- around the tree trunk for, to prevent him from falling. Right, right. Yeah, so uh, so when he woke up the next morning, uh, they were gone, and yet he was there dangling in the tree, so he, he was able to get down from the tree. He found some of his arrows, some of the things that he had thrown at him, and he went back to the campsite, and he found his friends, and uh, he uh, was totally exhausted. He fell asleep for about six hours and then later uh, went back to he went back home to share the experience with his family and there's so there's a lot more to it uh, where he got where the air force got involved mm-hmm. now now i'm going to jump back to the mexican case where these three young men were up on the tree and when these uh beings they were they had a um they were very curious they said why you know Think think about this, Ryan. Uh, in both both cases, uh, you have 
these witnesses climbing climbing up on a, in a tree. I mean, why would he? You wouldn't. It's not your normal uh, your normal thing where you find humans in a tree. But right. for some reason, um, these both in both cases they they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it just so happened that there would be a, a UFO uh, hovering in that area and catching a curiosity. Mm-hmm. So. What these what happened here, Ryan, was in this case, in the Mexican case, the uh, the beings approached him, approached the boys, and then they started to climb up the tree. Oh wow! Okay, so this and is where the they, cases differ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they climbed up the tree and uh, they got near the near the boys, but they didn't only they kept their distance, and so they kept climbing up uh, up the tree limb. And then all of a sudden, a small disc uh, hovered right above the tree, and then it was followed by a number of other other uh, trees. Uh, no, excuse me, another a number of other UFOs. Okay. Other and um, so all of a sudden, the door of the object opened up, and the beings, some of the beings, were able to climb up in the tree, and they used the tree to get like a ladder to climb into the disc. <laughs> wow. That is so uh, amazing. Well, these these gentlemen uh, kept looking. They they saw that there that the that tree was surrounded by all about forty. I think they estimated there were forty of these beings that were there. Whoa! And he noticed that they also paid attention to the plant life and rocks. So it was almost as if they were like on a science uh, like a scientific uh, expedition. Right. Right. And he also said that they were carrying a small box. And they would break off into groups, and in each group, one would carry a small box. So uh, they uh, the, they kept observing these 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 beings, and then finally, uh, it got later, they they left, and then uh, and then all of a sudden, they uh, they didn't hear anything, but then they came back, and they could hear all this rustling down down below all among the leaves. And from what I remember was that the they couldn't see him, and they find out that perhaps these they were they were invisible. Mm-hmm. So uh, they didn't they didn't see them, and then later more of these beings came back um, again, and uh, finally they left. And during throughout that time, there was a number of these uh, flying uh, discs uh, above the round the tree. They would make formations into a triangle. So then, right around dawn, then finally the the boys, when the when the sun came up, um, and uh, the the beings were gone, they climbed down the tree and they, they checked themselves to make sure that everything was okay with them, and then they decided to go ahead and climb back. Uh, no, excuse me, uh, to go back to the campsite. They decided to find the main trail, and later um, they ran into a small search party. And so they were able to be directed back to the main campsite. W- what happened in this case, Ryan, was that this uh, particular case was uh, there was publicized throughout the national media in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it caught the interest of a number of people, uh, the local media as well. And um, later, um, Mr. Jaime Malson, who is a well-known journalist and has been involved in UFO investigations in Mexico. He went to visit these boys two years later, 
and he went back to the campsite. Mm-hmm. Uh, long expedition, and sure enough, uh, they did observe these two beings uh, way out there. They did they did observe two of them through binoculars and that. Uh, that area is just very very um, has a lot of anomalous activity, as well as other areas along the border. Mm-hmm. Um, Wow, now you're saying uh, when Jaime went with the boys, they actually had a sort of far-off encounter? They actually saw beings? Yes, yes. Wow. Back to, uh, and uh, recently I was invited to go down, uh, go to a small event that they were having, a campsite, uh, to meet with the young boys. Well, now they're, they're this is tw- almost 20 years later. Right. You know, they're not, not young men, older men. And... Um, there was a reunion with them as well as with the number of local people and and, and the uh, participants in this uh, excursion that they had to meet with them. Mm-hmm. So I was invited to go, and they had a small co- UFO conference in that area, which uh, I, I, I might be attending one later on in the year. But uh, the chance to interact with them as well as uh, tight tying into similarities between these both cases are, is quite interesting. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, having met Donald and then having met these, uh, you know, at this point, these young men, um, what do you, what do you make of the Boy Scouts? I want to ask you that, Ruben. What did you, when they told you this story, when you met them face to face, did you believe the story? Did it seem like they were, well, they stuck to it? Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. I I didn't get a chance to meet with him. Uh, However, I spoke with the the main uh, young man who wrote a book, uh, Raul Fabricio. I see. Uh, Okay. He he wrote he wrote the book, and I had contacted I had contacted him to get permission to you to tie in his to to research more his story and as well as um, putting together a a presentation that I did uh, last year. Okay. And I, I totally, oh yes, uh, I totally believe what he said, what they experienced really actually happened. Just like you know, after when I spoke with him on the phone and looked at the comparisons with the with the notes that I had and uh, with my interview with Don Shrum, uh, I find them and I find these boys to be, you know, or these young men to be of high character as well as, um, well, at least the, the story it has a lot of credibility. <laughs> It sounds like it, yeah. And I mean, what is there to gain from something like this? You always have to wonder when people come forward with cases as and, incredible as these. Yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing is um, what I find is like with Don, uh, they he had a, and he was he used a different name. Um, his concern was the same issues that a lot of a lot of these folks who have encounters or their experiences is there. They're concerned about the ridicule factor. They're concerned about what their families might think, or or if there might be a possibility that this will affect their job. So gradually, later, these these folks will finally come out and help put together the, or give a, a, a much more information on what had happened to them. And in, and if we were fortunate, uh, they may put it into a book. So that's mm-hmm. how one way we could start tying in the the comparisons or with, with these different unique historical cases right absolutely and i mean while these 
while these cases happen somewhere on the ground, Ruben, I want to talk about one that happens somewhere in the skies, which is, you know, aptly the title of this podcast. Uh, this case gave me chills. Uh, nothing is more credible and more chilling than having a UFO encounter in the air um, from pilots. Now, could you please run us through the uh, the Santos case? Because this one is by far one of the most uh, incredible cases I've heard. And talk about a close encounter. <laughs> oh yeah, this this case here really has one one of the most significant cases that I've come across. Thanks thanks through a number of colleagues that have investigated investigated this case previously. One of the reasons why I was so fascinated with this case is that I need to go back in and share with you about another case prior. Um, what got us? What really got us interested in the Carlos de los Santos case, mm-hmm. um, both Noe and I uh, had put together a book called Mexico's Roswell. Oh, yes, of course. The uh, Chihuahua UFO crash. Mm-hmm. And that's where a an object had collided with a small airplane over the, uh, the deserts of uh, northern Chihuahua in an area known as Coyame. Uh, the way the story goes is back in 1974, on August 25th, there was a small plane that from airport flying toward Mexico City uh, and in uh, in that at the same time there was a an object that was being uh, monitored out in the Gulf of Mexico that was flying toward Texas and over by the uh, Houston um, the Gulf of Mexico area heading toward Texas and this object was being picked up by US military radar thinking uh, the uh, radar operators thought this that this could have been uh, a uh, an ICBM that was that may have been launched from a submarine as it turned out uh- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Uh, the object was around flying to about 2,000 miles an hour, and it was up at 75,000 feet, and then it started to descend gradually. And all of a sudden, it made a 90-degree turn, it made an abrupt turn, avoided going into U.S. airspace, and then it flew into northern Mexico. 
at that time that object uh, collided, excuse me, that object had uh, flown over most of northern Mexico towards uh, the Chihuahua Desert, and that's when the collision had occurred. And uh, not, not to go in too much in depth about the story, but what, what I find fascinating, of course, is that in the attempts of the search and rescue uh, by the Mexican army, um, a small disc, and the disc was approximately uh, 16 feet in diameter, about 5 feet in height. So it was a small That's disc. Pretty small, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting was... Um, there's more to the story, but the way we knew about this case, it was through a report called the Deneb Report. Deneb was the name of the of, of, a, of the report that was uh, written by what we believe are, are a group of military insiders. These people really went in depth, or the or the writer, they really went in, into depth about the rescue and the attempts to get the. Uh, the saucer back, and then unfortunately, the the Mexican soldiers were exposed to some sort of agent, and they all died. Oh wow! In the in the convoy. So um, the what, what was interesting was that the all this is being monitored, and there was a large uh, army base across across the border in El Paso from Fort Bliss, and they immediately launched a team, and these guys went toward the toward the wreckage and uh, also the convoy where they found all the soldiers that were were dead the difference is that the u.s rescue team they all wore protective clothing uh, protective equipment and then they immediately went toward the disc and they were able to get it uh, uh, attached to one of those lar- to a large uh, helicopter being a, and it was flown back to the border across to the U.S. with uh, a number of other es- uh, other helicopters that were escorting the larger helicopter back to the, while, while the, da- you know, with the UFO dangling. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot. That's a whole other interview there. But the reason, <laughs> reason one of the fascinating things about this case, it, it happened in August 25th of 1974. Well, it just so happens that eight months later, um, approximately in May, May 3rd is the exact date, in 1975, there was a pilot that reported that he was flying and he um, had a an accident. One of the UFOs had hit his hit the underbelly of his of the fuselage. <laughs> then he started to uh, uh, when he was flying, he uh, this is what he had shared with me because I met with him in person as well. Uh, he was 23 years old at the time, and when he was flying, he was uh, flying toward the, the west coast out of Mexico City, flying some businessmen, and they were flying toward uh, in Guerrero. Uh, and when he arrived, the next day he was going to return back. He was, uh, oh, it's a small little uh, town called Cehuantanejo. It's in the state of Guerrero. It's on the Pacific side of Mexico. And he was flying a, uh, a Piper Aztec, which is a small Cessna, well, almost the size of a small Cessna. Okay. And so when he was flying back, uh, he was flying at an altitude of about uh, 10,000 feet. And all of a sudden, um, he had this feeling that he was being watched. And he looked over to his left side of, of his wing. And all of a sudden, he saw this lar- this dark gray disc hovering right above above his wing. 
and then he immediately turned to his right, and then uh, he saw another disc right above above his wing on the right side. And then all of a sudden, a disc came right toward him, and it and he thought he was going to have a collision with it, and then it all of a sudden it just went be- bang, it went below, of, and it stuck underneath the fuselage. <laughs> so he had three three of these planes um, that were surrounding him. And he was he was terrorized. He was just horrified. And then all of a sudden, he noticed that he had no control of the flight instruments. Oh no! This is like my and, personal nightmare, Ruben. <laughs> oh God! He's flying. Are you a pilot? No. Um. But oh. you know, I'm gonna be moving to Los Angeles soon, as I told you. And uh, I I do plan on doing some uh, civilian flying with a, a mutual friend of ours, Greg Bishop the ufo uh researcher uh, but this is this is, i i have horrible nightmares about this you know the instruments oh. failing and ugh, i can't even imagine uh, adding a ufo event to that oh god and and again uh, the, the he basically or carlos describes the disc to be about oh approximately about 14 feet in in uh, diameter okay again these were small discs and so what was really uh, problematic was all of a sudden um, he these objects started to lift his airplane in, into a higher altitude, and uh, so he was flying approximately at ten thousand feet, and then all of a sudden it's, he's up at uh, fifteen thousand feet. Oh wow! And what scared him was the fact that uh, his as they as they were dragging him upward, uh, his concern was he he was his cockpit was not pressurized and that he would um, have no oxygen and he would pass out. Uh, that would be, that was his main concern. Mm-hmm. Well, then he throughout this time he was calling the air traffic controllers in Mexico City, transmitting "Mayday, Mayday, Mayday!" I have three UFOs completely surrounding me. I have no control of my my flight instruments. Do you hear me? And fortunately, this was, his entire experience was uh, was recorded by the Mexico City Air Traffic Control mm-hmm. Control. And so, I believe um, you may have a a small segment of that uh, to share with the audience when you're ready. Yes, absolutely. You know what? Let's go ahead and do that right now. So this is the actual transmission between Santos and the Mexico City International Airport control tower, guys. So let's take a listen right now. So that that just gives me chills hearing the frantic oh. voice of Santos himself uh in real time as this UFO UFO event was happening Ruben uh wow I I I feel so fortunate that we have that um it is evidence that you know this this isn't just a story this has been recorded in terms of um the FAA being involved in Mexico City oh wow <laughs> oh absolutely um his 
his cases. Uh, and there are other um, pilots that have also had encounters <clears throat> with uh, with unidentified aerial phenomena or UAP or UFOs, as, as we say. But um, one of the things that I find real interesting, too, is the verification uh, behind this because uh, they, the Mexican government, um, or and also their 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 version of the FAA, uh, had a ordered a small Learjet that was nearby to make visual contact, and the pilot in that Learjet also noticed the three mysterious objects surrounding Carlos's airplane. Oh wow! So now, so that's the other part of the, uh, part of the verification, and uh, uh, what happened was that. Carlos uh, all, uh, noticed that they were flying right over or close to the volcano Popocatepetl. That's uh, one of the largest active volcanoes not too far from Mexico City. And he all of a sudden, these objects, uh, one on his left side, just flew toward the direction of the volcano, and so did the other object that was on the other side of the wing. And finally, the uh, the one that was underneath his fuselage left, left the airplane and it went toward that same same direction. So he had to uh, land back and in uh, back at the Mexico City airport. And when he land when he he tried to land, but he noticed that his uh, that his flight wheels wouldn't be was wasn't able to uh, to operate. In other words, they, they the wheels would w- were 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 stuck. So he manually had to crank the wheels down, um, and it might have been because of the, the dent that UFO had caused under the fuselage. So he finally he he landed, and what he um, upon his arrival um, he was he was seen. They gave him a medical exam just to make sure that he wasn't hallucinating or wasn't on drugs or anything right. like that. Or he wasn't on. He wasn't drinking any alcohol, and he came out. Um, they don't obviously didn't find anything out of the ordinary with him. Well, he had this. His um, you know, there was a lot of attention again, like like the, uh, the 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 case from the young men in Mexico, like the uh, the the Boy Scouts. There was a lot of national media with this case, and there were. Again, we're look, we're going back into time in 1975 when there was a lot of lot of uh, uh, interest in the by the newspapers and and that so it was big news and finally um, several weeks later and this, this is, gets really interesting Ryan um, what he shared was he was he was driving and he was confronted by four black suited. Uh, uh, Scandinavian-looking man, as he described him in a black limousine. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, and uh, they they forced him on the side off the road, and they warned him not to discuss his sighting or harm would happen to him and his family. And Carlos was on his way to onto a television interview, and he decided not to do not to go to the interview because of the threat. Mm-hmm. And then again, um, um, there were some prominent. UFO investigators at the time, Dr. J. Allen Heine and even Jack Belay, uh, were going to meet with him. And again, these um, strangers reappeared, the men in black. Yeah. And they threatened him again, saying he was not to 
to in, be interviewed, but uh, he said he he, he avoided he de, he decided to um, not to pay attention, and, and so he conducted his interview with <clears throat> with the uh, prominent investigators in that, and and gradually uh, his story is it's one of those uh, solid uh, uh, cases that has so much behind it, uh, paper, you know, the credibility of himself as well as the paperwork, the documents, the different witnesses that were there. It's definitely one of the, the prominent cases in, in ufology. Absolutely. It uh, it reminds me a lot of the uh, the F- Japan flight uh, case as well with uh, the pilot Tarahuchi who came forward, was told not to talk about it, was put on desk duty after having a UFO, you know, make contact with his plane. Um, but thank God we have, you know, with the Japan case, we have radar data. We have the uh, transmission between Tarahuchi and the flight tower. Uh, we have the same with the Santos case. So um, absolutely astounding, you know. Um, that one that one will remain, I think, one of the best cases in UFO history, that of Santos. Oh. Oh, I, I definitely, I t- totally agree. And then, of course, the correlation with the cases uh, that we've been researching, the the 1974 uh, UFO case, the the crash between the the UFO yes. and the and a small airplane. And believe it or not, we have a number of witnesses uh, that we have now now coming forth forward and are sharing their unique uh, stories with us they were there at the time more than when they see this bright flashing light and we have testimony from a gentleman who actually saw uh, some ETs in that uh, in that desert area right around the same time frame when the collision or had occurred what um, what we've done Ryan was we put together a book called UFOs over Mexico encounters mm-hmm. with identified aerial phenomena uh, we were very fortunate to network very closely with two colleagues from Mexico, Mr. Carlos Guzman and Alfonso Salazar. Uh, they have also written a number of books uh, about uh, ufology in Mexico, and they put together a book on aviation cases. And we felt that it was so important that these cases be shared and written and translated. So we, trans- so we working with them, collaborated, and we translated their book into English, as well as um, we've uh, also have included some of our cases in the book, and it gives you a, a historical perspective of, of all the uh, encounters, primarily in Mexico and Latin America. But it also gives you a picture of what is happening all over the world too, of UFO encounters by pilots, and um, it's just, so this just kind of gives you an idea. Uh, again, and these are cases that are not known in the general ufology community, and so we were very fortunate to be able to compile them and and have them available. So if anyone who's interested, they can always go to our website, which is roswellbooks.com, and look at different books that we've written. Oh, thank you for and, mentioning the website. I uh, 
I know it's a treasure trove of cases, like you said, that just are not known here in America. Um, now, whether that's the language barrier, uh, I can't attest to. I myself took seven years of uh, of Spanish classes. I should be able to understand some of these. Um, but like you said, you it was also translated into English, which is amazing. Um, and then one of the other things, Ruben, that fascinates me is how open the Mexican government is to this phenomenon and about what they've investigated. Um, you have to wonder why we're so Cladenstein here in the United States when it comes to that. Yes. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a mixed bag, um, Ryan, uh, working with, with my, with our colleagues in Mexico, uh, Mr. Alfonso Salazar and a group of other people, they're also trying to work on a, on a disclosure uh, of cases from the Mexican government. And and there are already, as you know, a number of, of governments in, or in different countries that have already are slowly sharing their files of UFO uh, encounters. Um, but Mexico hasn't officially as of yet. And so these guys are trying to attempt it. But they're there is has been a general um, acceptance uh, because it's different in a sense that um, many of these people, many of these cases, people are not. They, it's just accepted among the among the population. Uh, again, there. I mean, there is some skepticism uh, in the research that we did in the UFO encounters. Again, we did find there were some pilots that were very concerned about sharing their stories because they were concerned about how um, their administration from the different uh, different airline companies would react if they were to share their stories but what we found what I found was that the media had so much access directly in, in getting the stories um, directly from the pilot Unlike here in the United States where you usually have a PR person, you know, that will or, – or a spokesperson um, that you have to go through. In Mexico, it was um, the newspaper reporters that were able to compile you know, the stories and that's what – that's what we found very, very interesting is that we, we had the testimonies and the experience already written up by the uh, newspaper reporters. And so that was a big, big uh, major aid in helping us compile, at least originally with when uh, both Carlos and Alfonso had put together uh, this book. And then when we start translating it, I thought, gee, is that is something that, you know, with how the media treats the subject uh, in a much more uh, credible, much more credible than what what our media is dealing with here in the United States, although I, I think it's changing somewhat. Over, over a period of time, you don't get the hoopla and the ridicule factor like you used to do, at least at least from what I've observed. I, I'd have to agree. I, I think things are definitely changing. The uh, the the overall mindset of the possibility of extraterrestrial life is definitely uh, changed and become more prevalent. Um, but then the question of UFOs having visited the planet, I think also it's a trickle down effect that the more cases we hear about, the more it's shared, the more people are more willing to open their eyes and possibly their minds to, to that. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Totally, 
Totally, I agree. I agree with you, Ryan. Uh, I think the the big advantage that we have now is the technology. Oh my God! You know how quickly we can receive uh, information on the internet, which we didn't have access to. Um, you know, maybe 20 years ago, at the time, it was still in its infancy, and um, now it's like bang! You're able to get it, get news from all these different websites from. Uh, information from other researchers, from uh, or various organizations like MUFON, NARCAP, etc., um, that you are able to get an update. And then, and the other difference is now is that uh, you mentioned it earlier was a language barrier. Now with this technology, uh, you can definitely get the information translated immediately in, into the different languages. Yeah. So I get that uh, from um, I keep in touch with a number of colleagues. And that send me their articles, and unfortunately, you know, I'm not able to travel to Mexico like I used to, and we we can't. Um, oh, before Noe and I and and the groups, we were, we had more uh, um, flexibility in traveling, especially in these remote areas. But unfortunately, now it, it may it's in some areas it's not safe, mm-hmm. you know, due due to the whole drug war situation that's been going on. So we have to take precaution, but we rely a lot on the findings of what our, our colleagues are are finding out in Mexico. Yeah, and the work continues, which I think is yes. amazing. Um, now, I want to move, Ruben, to a few listener questions. When people knew that I was going to be speaking to you, um, they definitely wanted to chime in. So if you don't mind, I'm going to throw some curveballs your way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, the first one has to do with your work with MUFON. Uh, like you said, you're a state director. You've worked internationally with MUFON. Um, and there are some individuals who in recent years feel that the organization has kind of moved away from its primary objective, you know, advancing the scientific investigation of UFOs. Um, how do you respond to that criticism? What do you think the organization uh, can do to be more responsive to its membership and, you know, overall the UFO community? Well, I, I think um, we have to go back to our mission statement, which is the scientific study of UFOs for the benefit of humanity through investigations, research, and education. And our organization has been around, has been around, around since 1969, and it, it is growing. Uh, I've been with it for 25 years and have seen a number of changes. Uh, we have a great uh, group of leaders uh, mm-hmm. in in our administration. Uh, we have a number of various technical um, r- technical people that are with various scientific backgrounds that are looking at the statistics that are being submitted by our field investigators and that. And what's interesting is that uh, now with the technology, we're able to create a, a have a database that collects some vital information from each of the sightings, and so out of that, I would say that you're able to get at least a general picture of what is going on in our skies, and you have a lot of data analysis to back that up. Now, as far as uh, where we're going and and that. Uh, I'm very sure, and I know that uh, we're always open to even constructive criticism of how to improve our the, you know, our organization. Uh, we have a, diver- a diverse membership. We meet either through conference calls, and then we meet also once a year 
where we go over you know what works what doesn't work you know, you know, for each state because we have a lot of growing problems uh, in terms of we share problems in other words how to make our organization better yeah I would I would say Ryan too it's something that uh, has been consistent uh, over the years is that uh, we definitely need new membership we need young blood we need young younger people as always been <laughs> even when I was young I kept hearing <laughs> that way we need uh, we need uh, more young people to get involved in this because obviously that work is it's important. Um, I, and, and as well as getting, you know, we're a volunteer organization. Um, we are, we don't get paid for it except, uh, we, our, our CEO and his staff, uh, they work, they need to work 24 seven. So obviously we, we work very hard to make sure that they're taken care of because we do need someone to man the helm. Yeah. But uh, with that though, you have, uh, a number of support staff. Uh, remarkable people that have been dedicating their time into uh, writing up the articles and putting it uh, together in our website, uh, in our newsletter as well. Uh, Roger Marsh uh, has done an excellent job, and God, I could go on with a number of other names. But there, I, I think that as far as uh, any sort of criticism, um, you know, I would just say we just – need to look at it constructively and see if we can implement some of the changes uh, so we can make better changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any organization goes through things like this. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind is that you you grow, you learn, uh, and you move on. And like you said, getting the younger people involved, I think, is particularly uh, a good mission. And I think that's the the way MUFON is heading, I mean, the website is gorgeous. It's very uh, sleek. It's for that new generation to be like, oh, you know, this is pretty cool. I want to check this out. And digitizing the case reports is another huge one as well, you know. Oh, God. I, I You know, I have to share with you. Um, in my, I have a storage bin, and I have all these whole records and that were given to me that I have also compiled. And then I have my own records. So we used to send many of these records to our national uh, headquarters. That's the way it was done back then. It was all through hard copies and you have yep. these huge files. And and now, thank God, we have it digitalized. But I have to say, though, uh, that back then, Brian, uh, we a number of these organizations, the way they communicated their membership was through newsletters and God, I was going through some of the old um, NICAP, uh, KUFOS, and some of the other organizations that were that have also been involved in looking at some some fantastic uh, information that are there. That is there. I'm I'm sure that they that these files have also been digitalized, which is and probably available to most people that are interested. But if we don't have that, um, then we lose that history. If that if someone doesn't take the time to scan them, what I also find really interesting is that a lot of these old files that I've acquired have there's a lot of le- personal letters, notes that was written by the investigator uh, between the witness and then the witness has to share their their stories and that part that a lot of those items may not be included in the overall digital report, but that's kind of gives you an insight of what was going on with those people during that time. Absolutely. And like, that's something that no one else will ever really uh, 
have access to. So there is something to be said for these, you know, these raw, hard data uh, case reports. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, we do have another question, Ruben, about uh, your neck of the woods in California. Um, a lot of triangular UFO sightings in that area, you know, stretching throughout the decades. Have you ever personally looked into triangular UFO reports or come across any very common um, patterns there in California in terms of the triangular formation? Yes. Uh, what's really interesting is, uh, I don't know if you remember the episode or the pro, the UFO hunters. Oh, absolutely. One Bill of my Burns. Yep. There's an episode in there called uh, Triangle Alley. And that's about tri- tri- the, uh, the triangles over uh, – that were occurring, the sightings that were occurring over Sonora, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, that area, we had a flap of, of, of triangles in that. And then we had uh, so many reports coming in from on our Interstate Highway 5, going up all the way through Oregon, Washington, almost almost up to the Canadian border, and, and also, to- again, toward the Mexican border. There were a number of these sightings of these triangles, and they come in various shapes I mean, they come in various sizes and that but uh definitely uh we've had our our share of these triangles i have to say though statistically the largest amount of sightings that are reported uh are spheres mm-hmm. uh orbs that overall uh over over triangles or discs or whatever i look at it oh, we receive monthly uh our reports from headquarters and in there that gives a description of, of the craft and well we there are about 23 different categories uh triangles is one among one of them but uh statistically when, when you look at what's being reported man it has always been these just these strange orbs that come in different colors or uh, metallic or 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 almost a plasma color and they fly at immense speeds. They sh- uh, they'll turn into different uh, shapes and, and as they're morphing into something else. But then they go back into their original um, into their, their original form. It, it's amazing. And a lot of people capture these uh, these particular uh, objects on their videos or on their cell phones and that. Yeah. Uh, so not not to take away from the triangles because that's still is something that I find fascinating, uh, you know. Because I remember earlier the uh, the cases that were, that were being reported was your good good old, good old fashioned flying saucer shaped objects, and it, <laughs> it became your cylinder shaped objects, and then were flooded with the the large boomerang or the or the triangle shaped objects as well. It's funny how that happens. It almost seems to evolve throughout the decades. I mean, you have to wonder, is that a cultural thing? Is it a sociological thing? Or is this literally the phenomena uh, evolving with time? Um, Like you said, the most prominent now is these orbs, these balls of plasma or energy that seem to be somewhat intelligent. Um, You know, while triangles might be some sort of top secret military technology or... uh, mixed with some sort of ET technology. And we won't go down that rabbit hole right now, but um, it, it is interesting I, that orbs seem to be more prominent now. I, I can't share with you. Uh, this is the, these are just sightings that happen here in the United States. 
that we had approximately 516 triangle shape reports that was reported to us for the year 2016. Wow. Compared to compared to um, let's see, in terms of orbs, uh, we had over a thousand. I was going to say it's got to be at least through. double. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what I find most fascinating is that during the during the fiscal year of oh, call it fiscal year during our calendar year of 2016. Uh, in looking at our data, we had approximately 259 landings, hoverings, or takeoffs. In other words, the witnesses uh, observed these crafts either in the process of landing or they were hovering real close or taking off. But out of that, uh, there were 20, 20 entities that were observed. Wow. And I find that quite fascinating. Um, I, I don't have the you know, I need to look more closely as to what is it that witnesses saw. But obviously, uh, when we get the reports of how close they were, they're going to see a lot more detail. Yeah, definitely. Wow. That's a lot of um, very close encounter cases. Yeah. I can also share with you in terms of, um, you know, just overall what, in terms of flying saucer reports, we had about 382 uh, overall, and then, but also reports of uh, oval sh- oval shape, which I think uh, is also connected with this whole saucer um, mm-hmm. shape object. It's 251. So if you were to combine that, yeah, I would say close to over 700 total of, of these flying discs. But uh, you know that it, that that tends to be higher, and then comes your triangle sightings, and then of course the spheres, which is the most reported. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing those numbers. I think that's something that a lot of people don't take into uh, consideration. And it really puts a perspective on how many um, UFO reports or UFO cases, I should say, are being reported as opposed to not being reported. We know that there are so many more UFO sightings that don't ever get reported. So Exactly. And this is just our move on data. There are other uh, da- databases out there. Right. Uh, that, uh, you know, we're just, again, not everyone reports their their sighting, but this is based on what's being reported through our database, through our case management system. And I can't share with you, though, uh, back in 2015, overall, we had over 11,000 uh, cases that was reported to MUFON. Wow. But, but it dropped uh, for a year to, for whatever reason, for 2016, it dropped down to 7,000. Mm, okay. uh, a little bit That's more than 7,000. So, you know, the difference of three, 4,000, but still, it just depends on what's being, who's reporting. And then also, this is where the media is important, uh, where we need to continue to advertise who we are, what we do, um, inform people about MUFON and all the other organizations so they could go ahead and file a report. Or many times people will, will file a report after, maybe after many years or they, they know loved ones or whatever, and then they decide to file a it was a historical report. Right. And then, uh, Ruben, do you know offhand the, uh, what the website is for MUFON, just in case any of the listeners want to oh, join? Yeah. Absolutely. Just MUFON.com. Perfect. Does it get easier than that? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get any easier, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, uh, for those that are interested in the other cases that we talked about, uh, they can go to roswellbooks.com. Great, and that's all of you in Noah's work, correct? Um, yes, that, 
that will con- connect you to our Amazon.com uh, for those people that are interested in purchasing books. Oh, perfect. Yeah, because we both know there's more to these cases than what we covered tonight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I I just barely just skimmed the surface, but you know, hopefully it'll mm-hmm. give um, the audience an overview as what 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 I'm, what we're doing. Yes. Absolutely. Um, now, I know you um, you have some speaking engagements coming up in the near future. Uh, would you mind telling us about those in case any anyone's in those, those areas? Yes. Uh, in October, um, I'll be speaking at the Mile High Mystery Conference. Yeah, that's going to be at the Crown Plaza, Denver Airport. And oh, the, a very the controversial airport. <laughs> yeah, October 6th through the 8th. And it'll be interesting because we'll be talking about UFOs, Bigfoot, uh, Don Politis, um, David Politis' uh, work on missing 411, cattle mm-hmm. uh, mutilations. There's a whole topic. They have a lot of interesting speakers, and, and I'll be speaking at that conference. And then in uh, November at the – through Paula Harris Starworks uh, Symposium, uh, be speaking in the, the in Laughlin, and that'll be at November 10th, 11th, and 12th at the Aquarius Casino Resort in Laughlin, Nevada. And the 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 theme there is called "Time for Truth: UFOs Living La Vida Loca." Oh, I love it. <laughs> La Vida Loca, the crazy life. Oh, that's perfect. They've got, they've got, she has a great lineup of speakers as well. So, mm-hmm. Oh, she's and wonderful. I, and I've in, been invited to a number of other smaller venues, but uh, those are the two big ones for me. And then also, the just to remind people, if they're interested in attending our MUFON Symposium, the focus is called The Case for, the, for a Secret Space Program. They have a great lineup uh, on July 20th through the 23rd. So you can go to MUFON.com and get all the information on the MUFON Symposium. Oh, that's so great. Ruben, thank you for joining me today. This has been extremely eye-opening. It has opened up the possibility that this is not just an American phenomenon. This is in Central America, South America, and all across the world. Um, and you've on- we've only scratched the surface tonight. So right. again... Worldwide phenomena. Exactly. exactly. You couldn't put it better myself, man. Um, that's roswellbooks.com where we can find all your work. Yes. yes. Perfect. And, uh, thanks to my good friend, uh, Noah Torres and I, we've been able to oh, do, sh- share a lot and put together a lot of interesting material for, for those that are very interested in what's going on. Great. I'm going to have to get Noah on to talk cowboys and aliens for sure. Oh, that's one of our favorites. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe we'll get you back in too. We'll do a round table. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, anytime, Ryan. Uh, great. Let us know. Ruben, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And, and again, uh, also uh, thank you very much to all your audience. That is it for our interview with Ruben Uriarte. Again, to learn more about his work, you can visit roswellbooks.com. If you have a personal story you'd like to share on the show, please email me at sprague at somewhereintheskies.com. While I may interview researchers often, it is the witness and experiencer I always want to hear from most. So please, reach out and let's start a conversation. And while we're on conversations... Share the show with anyone you think might like it. These topics are more widely accepted now more than ever. The growing listenership of this show in particular 
continues to astound me. So embrace that weird shit in your life, and let's keep searching for answers together. The show is on Twitter, at Somewhere Skies, and we have a very active Facebook group you can join called Somewhere in the Skies Podcast. And if you haven't already, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps more than you know. That is it for today, guys. I'll see you next Monday. And I'll say off the bat, it's going to be a very interesting episode as we dig deep into the rabbit hole of the parapsychological aspect of UFOs. It's going to be fun. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. This has been a Third Kind production. To learn more, visit thirdkindproductions.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.